0: Hey guys, welcome back to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. It is Raw vs. Nitro, the WWF versus WCW, and I'm your host, Ray Russell. This week, guys, we'll be jumping into June 24th, 1996. We'll talk all things Raw and Nitro for that Monday night. We'll also be talking a bit of news, including a Titanic lawsuit on our hands Here is the WWF filing restraining orders against both Turner Broadcasting and World Championship Wrestling. We'll get to that in just a minute. A reminder that you can listen to Monday Warfare in our sister's show, The Wrestling Memory Grenade. Right now, over there, we're smack dab in the middle of our 1987 and the WWF Project as we analyze and discuss the entire year of 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation over on The Wrestling Memory Grenade Show. You can listen to The Grenade as well as this show, Monday Warfare, on the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, which can be found over at www.wrestlecopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com. And of course, our shows can also be found on all of your favorite podcast streaming apps, from Apple to Spotify to Google Pod and beyond. You name it, and we're probably there. Be sure to follow us on our social media accounts over on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade as well. I'm constantly adding new videos and pictures of years gone by. Lots of fun stuff always going up on our social media accounts as well as on our YouTube account. You can stop on over to YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade to see the latest we've added there on our YouTube channel. Always a fun time going back in time to look at some of wrestling history. And of course, I encourage you to head on over to our Patreon account. It's what keeps us going, guys. No ads here on the show. This is the only thing that pays the bills. Is Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, that's Patreon.com, slash wrestle, a dozen tiers to choose from, but the $5 all-access tier is affordable and well worth it. You get six gifts for $5, including all of my insanely detailed show notes for here on the Monday Warfare show, as well as our Grenade show, early access to many of the podcasts. Many of our patrons already know the last couple episodes of Monday Warfare, they dropped on Patreon six and ten days early. Think about that. You guys could be listening to these shows long before they go up to the masses. So, you get the insanely detailed show notes, early access to many of the podcasts, unedited versions of many of the podcasts, enhanced versions of our earliest episodes of the Grenade podcast, which covers 1989 and the NWA. Not only do you get enhanced sound quality with those episodes, there's also a lot of content that was originally edited out, edited right back in. New conversations to be heard there. Also, as part of Patreon, it's our Patreon exclusive watch along series. You can watch along or listen along as we cover many of the WWF and WCW pay per views that coincide with this program right here, Monday Warfare from 95 and 96 thus far. Also, watch alongs involving Saturday night's main event, Clash of the Champions. Hey, Steamboat versus Flare, Clash 6, it's on there. Also, Coliseum Home Videos, USA Specials, and so much more. Plus, now a sixth gift, guys. Monthly digital downloads now available also as part of the All Access tier or any of the higher tiers over at patreon.com. Slash WrestleCopia. No subscription. Cancel anytime. Low, low price here. The all access tier just five dollars. Give it a go for a month. See what you think. I think you'll love the gifts that we have to offer. And every penny of it goes right back into the WrestleCopia podcast network. Like I said, it's the patrons that keep us alive. Help keep us going for the years to come. And with all that said, it's time to dive into episode 24 of Monday Warfare here as we talk June 24. 1996. But before we get to the TV, let's talk a little WWF news, shall we? And it seems as though Todd Pettengill has been hospitalized. Pettengill was hospitalized over this past week while he was doing his morning radio show on WPLJ in New York. He had a kidney stone attack. He was in bed for the King of the Ring pay-per-view, but did talk on the phone during the free-for-all pre-show and hyped the pay-per-view anyway. What a trooper that Todd huh? Also, more Brian Pillman news. Another part of Pillman's current angle in the WWF now is that the international representatives for the WWF want to nullify his contract because they believe he'll give the WWF a negative international portrayal because of his behavior. I don't remember this ever coming up on TV, but interesting nonetheless. And so this is one of those weeks where it could be a short news week, but it's actually a long news week, so to speak, because we only have one more bit of WWF news here, but it's a doozy, guys. The WWF, Titan Sports, suing Turner Broadcasting, World Championship Wrestling, and Eric Bischoff. And I went through, I took a bunch of notes from The Torch, I took a bunch of notes from The Wrestling Observer, I put it all together, and I'm going to break it down for you here right now. All right, and I've titled this A Titanic Lawsuit. On June 20th, Titan Sports filed both a lawsuit and a request for a restraining order against Turner Broadcasting, World Championship Wrestling, and Eric Bischoff, largely as a result of WCW's top angle involving Kevin Nash and Scott Hall invading WCW. The lawsuit has four counts. The first is unfair competition under the Lanham Act, claiming WCW has used false and misleading prescriptions of fact that is likely to cause confusion in the marketplace and deceive consumers that Titan is affiliated or sponsors an interpromotional angle. Two, the second count is trademark and trade dress infringement and false designation or origin regarding WCW using the trade dress and persona of Razor Ramon, a titan trademark, trade dress being everything that Razor Ramon presents, his his toothpick, his hairstyle, his his outfits, etc. Three, the third count is the Connecticut unfair competition, citing a violation of Connecticut law by WCW's misleading descriptions of fact and the angle which constitutes a deceptive act that it's Use of the Razor Ramon persona does the same. It also cites WCW circulating false rumors of impending bankruptcy of Titan Sports as a deceptive act and its constant disparagement of Titan Sports on TV and on its hotlines as an unfair or deceptive act. And the final count, count four, is a defamation and libel suit stemming from the February 5th Nitro, going all the way back, February 5th show. When the lights went out in Lakeland, Florida, on Nitro, and Eric Bischoff and Steve McMichael made comments acting like it was the competition, WWF, that may have had something to do with the power going out. Bischoff later apologized on the following episode of Nitro, February 12th, for any inference that Titan was responsible for the outage. Although twice that week on the WCW hotline, both Mark Madden and Gene Okerland made statements not so much saying Titan was responsible, but certainly strongly hinting it was a possibility. Titan is asking in the suit that TBS and WCW be required to disgorge all profits earned as a result of this angle, both for the June 16th and July 7th pay-per-view shows because Titan is claiming WCW used a bait-and-switch tactic on June 16th, that's the Great American Bash, leading viewers to believe that Hall and Nash would wrestle as a WWF team on the Great American Bash pay-per-view before announcing that the match would take place at the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view on July 7th WWF also requesting that WCW pay triple damages of those profits along with punitive damages and cost of attorney fees. In addition Titan filed a request for a temporary restraining order asking for all of the following. Oh, here we go. Titan asks WCW be prohibited from making any statements or visual indications that the WWF is affiliated in any way with this angle or that any wrestler appearing on the WCW programs are in any way affiliated with the WWF. Two, using any misleading descriptions of fact that is likely to cause confusion or deceive the public as to the affiliation of any of the wrestlers appearing on any WCW programming. Three, using any of Titan's trademarks for names or dress that would cause confusion among viewers. Four, making reference to Scott Hall as either Razor Ramon or the bad guy, or presenting him with a Hispanic accent or being from a Hispanic background with slick back hair and a single curl in the front with a toothpick in his mouth or behind his ear, gold chains or chains around his neck, wrestling shorts, wrestling boots, a vest, elbow, and knee pads, razor blade jewelry or designs on his clothing, or anything else used by Hall during his WWF tenure that would cause consumers to believe he is portraying Razor Ramon. Wow. Um. Yeah, you You. could you be Scott Hall, but you can't be Scott Hall or anything else you've ever done. We continue on. Five, boy, they ask for a lot. Making any reference saying that Scott Hall is currently affiliated with the WWF. Six, making any reference to Kevin Nash as Diesel or Big Daddy Cool, or presenting him in the character including a goatee-style beard and mustache. So Kevin Nash not allowed to have a goatee and mustache here in WCW. Vince really stretching things here. So. We go back here. This is st- we're still on six. So they're requesting that Kevin Nash not be referred to as Diesel or Big Daddy Cool. He may not have a goatee-style beard or mustache, a black tank top, black pants, black leather boots, black vest, black fingerless gloves, or gloves of any kind, black sunglasses. Wow, you can't wear black sunglasses? Or anything else utilized by Titan during Nash's tenure with that organization. Seven, making any reference to Nash is currently affiliated with the WWF. Eight representing Hall, Nash, or any other former Titan wrestler or personality without identifying that person by the character name they will use as explicitly stating which organization that performer is under contract to. Nine, prohibiting playing any videotapes on television or in commercials of Hall and Nash's appearance to this point on Nitro and the angle that occurred on the June 16th Great American Bash pay-per-view. We're going to go back and break some of this down, by the way, guys. And finally, 10, state three times. This is what is requesting WCW must do on their TV programming. They must state three times during every Nitro broadcast and on the preview show for the Bash of the Beast pay-per-view that Scott Hall and Kevin Nash are both under contract to WCW and all their actions since May the 27th have been at the direction of WCW. WCW must also say that any statements made by the WCW or suggestions made by WCW that Hall or Nash was affiliated with the WWF were absolutely false and misleading. The WWF was not and has not been in any way affiliated with the portrayal of Hall and Nash since May 27th, and there will not be any matches between the WWF wrestlers and WCW wrestlers on Nitro, on any of your shows, or on any of your pay-per-views. Any statement or suggestion to that effect by WCW and TBS personnel prior to now was simply false. Whew! Wow, guys. And there's still more believe it or not, and uh, I'm going to try to run through this as fast as I can, but I promise you we're further along than we aren't, if that makes any sense to you. Let's go back and look at some of the restraining order requests real quick, shall we? So there were 10 restraining order requests here. The WWF asking WCW to stop making any statements that may suggest that Hall and Nash are still affiliated with the WWF. That makes sense in some of these early requests here, and no matter what Bischoff or anyone says, obviously the entire intention here is to keep you guessing where are these guys, well, we know where they're from, but where do these Who do these guys work for right now? And even though I knew as a young Smark, a teenage Smark, if you will, at the time, that Hall and Nash no longer were under employment at the WWF, but this angle had me so, so much in the palm of their hand that even though I knew this was all a work and I knew they were no longer with the WWF, it still kept me guessing, like, what is going on? You just, you just had to step back, suspend your disbelief, And enjoy the story. And for the casual fan, yeah, this is really confusing. What is happening? Why are Razor and Diesel on WCW TV? Are they working together? I can get where Vince is coming from to a degree. I also love the fact that they ask Razor not to have slick back hair. uh, Kevin Nash not to have a mustache and goatee. uh, Even telling Hall he can't have the toothpick behind the ear, which I know Vince doesn't watch anything. He's not aware of anything outside of that WWF bubble. But the Diamond Stud was rocking the toothpick gimmick long before Razor Ramon. So he doesn't have a leg to stand on with that one there. But some of these requests are just ridiculous. Kevin Nash no longer to wear any kind of gloves. Black sunglasses of any kind ever. Not even when he's driving? And uh, apparently, Titan asking Kevin Nash to either grow a full beard, apparently, or shave it off. Because apparently only Diesel can wear a goatee. I'll scroll down here to the last few requests here by Titan on, on this restraining order. Prohibiting playing any videotapes or television commercials with Hall and Nash appearing up until this point. So basically everything they've shot from Scott Hall's debut to Kevin Nash's debut, the power bomb through, through the, uh, the staging area on Eric Bischoff, they're requesting all that to never be played again on WCW TV. Yeah, that was going to happen. And then of course, number 10 here requesting that WCW make all these statements three times per broadcast on nitro, as well as the bash at the beach pay-per-view pre-show To make the statement that Hall and Nash are under WCW contract. They're not with the WWF and haven't been since May 27th. Vince McMahon and company really stretching here with a lot of these requests. So we go on with the final leg of this story here. Attorneys David Dunn representing WCW and of course Jerry McDivitt representing the WWF appeared before the U.S. District Court for the District of Connecticut on June 24th for two hours of arguments regarding the temporary restraining order we just talked about. The judge, Dorsey, who was in the middle of a major organized crime drug case at the time, after two hours, stated that he doesn't know wrestling. and doesn't have the time at this point to devote to this case. But when his current case is complete, he will devote four days to hearings on the subject matter, which is expected to be by around the second week of July. So this judge that's in charge of this WWF versus WCW war here, he's in the middle of a major organized crime drug case, and he gets presented this professional wrestling nonsense. Unbelievable. Got some notes here from Dave Meltzer. He says the key to that, the hearing being postponed, is that the hearing won't take place before the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, which is the key date. So WCW, which is largely kept quiet about the case, considered no ruling to be a major victory. WWF is still exploring other legal options and hasn't given up the attempt to get the angle changed before the pay-per-view takes place. Vince is worried. He knows this is a huge angle. Paul and Nash heading into that big six-man tag at the Bash of the Beach. Among the key points in the hearing were WCW's attorney Dunn pointing out that over the past few years, there have been 41 wrestlers who have left one company to go to the other. And in 28 of those cases, the wrestlers switch companies while maintaining the same name and or basic persona. And there has never been a lawsuit filed before. I can only think of the big boss man, aka the boss. They made him switch over to the guardian angel gimmick because Vince McMahon gave them some shit for that one as well, which, I mean, it was the same gimmick, obviously. And that's just off the top of my head. There may have been others, but very interesting here. Dunn also claimed that most of Scott Hall's mannerisms from his look, the style of trunks, the hairstyle, and the toothpick, and even referring to himself as the bad guy, were created by WCW for its Diamond Stud character, and that it was Titan who copied all of that to create Razor Ramon. Well, I beg to differ. I don't think any of that was created by WCW. I, I believe Scott Hall created most of that himself, but I will agree. And again, I'm sure Vince McMahon had no idea what a diamond stud was, but if you go back and watch the diamond stud in WCW, you will see the same hairstyle, the same look, the toothpick gimmick, the bad guy line, which Scott Hall loved from Scarface. Meanwhile, on the other end, McDivitt argued that if Hall and Nash were to be called the diamond stud in Vinnie Vegas, they would have no problem. But by not giving Hall and Nash a name, the public was believing they were Razor Ramon and Diesel, still with the World Wrestling Federation. At one point, Judge Dorsey asked Dunn to have WCW play down the Ramon character, and Dunn said he'd suggest that to his clients, provided McDivitt agreed he wouldn't sue WCW based on anything that takes place on the July 7th Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, which McDivitt wouldn't agree to. In a press released by Titan, Vince McMahon stated that he regretted filing the suit, but said that I have finally been pushed up against a wall with no other options than to protect my company. My wife and I have committed our adult lives to building the WWF. This company competes very well and I dare say stays ahead in a marketplace where quality of programming, creativity, start development, and consumer interest reflects success. However, when a giant competitor uses your very creations to dupe and confuse the public, then the playing field isn't level, and you are forced to fight in a different arena. McDevitt argued that even with Hall and Nash stating on some shows that they didn't work for WWF, by WCW not giving them names, he stated it still confuses the public, and he pointed out that on the June 24th Nitro, it was never stated that the two don't work for the World Wrestling Federation. The irony of the lawsuit is that this reverses the positions of both organizations in a similar 1991 angle involving Ric Flair joining the WWF to feud with Hulk Hogan. Wearing what was then the NWA World Championship belt, Flair was initially portrayed by the WWF as being a wrestler under contract to a rival organization and as the real world champion wearing the rival group's belt on TV. WCW went to court and won, getting the belt itself back, whereupon Vince McMahon bought a new belt that was a replica of the original WCW world title. At that point, they wound up in court again, and again WCW prevailed, and that WWF would not be allowed to show the belt on any of its TV programming. That was when McMahon came up with a clever angle, where Jack Tunney banned Flair's belt appearing on TV, and they digitized it, blacked it out on the screen, when Flair would come to the ring, up until the 1992 Royal Rumble when Flair captured the WWF title belt. The suit claims that after Hall and Nash agreed to join WCW, the WCW implemented a plan to deceive the public about the status of them, suggesting there was doubt they were coming as a phase of plan to suggest when they showed up it was a surprise and that they weren't affiliated with WCW. And that's, that's it. That's it for the lawsuit, guys. But holy shit, that was a mouthful. The WWF essentially trying anything and everything to squash this. And in response, uh, even here this week on Nitro, we'll see WCW has no qualm about continuing their storyline with Hall and Nash as they had planned heading into the bash at the beach pay-per-view. WWF just um, perhaps a little concern might be the word we're looking for there. Vince McMahon doing a little bit of everything here, legally, asking for a bit much, and he gets very little, if if none of this, really, other than I, I do recall at the Great American Bash pay-per-view, Bischoff asking Hall and Nash, do you work for the World Wrestling Federation? They say No. So they verified it there. Now, you have to do that three times every week on TV? I don't know about that. That seems a bit silly. And I do agree with some of the questions here that WWF has, or Vince McMahon has stated that they are purposely refusing to announce them as Hall and Nash or giving them names of any type simply because they want us to believe that these guys are Razor, Ramon, and Diesel. That's how I felt then as it was happening. Why don't these guys have names? These are This is Razor, Ramon, and Diesel. It's the way I looked at it way back in 1996. So it was very smart on WCW's part whether they admit that's what they were doing or not at the time. Now, obviously, they have a match coming up, so we're going to have to give them names sooner rather than later, and they will, which we'll find out. But as of right now, two hours in front of this judge, this poor judge already dealing with an organized crime drug case, gets handed this WWF versus WCW lawsuit. This guy has no idea anything about professional wrestling, and now he's been told, you need to figure this out. He sat there listening to these two attorneys go back and forth for two hours, and he says, you know what, I've I've heard enough. I've heard enough to know that I don't know what the hell any of this means. I'm going to go revisit this once my big drug case is closed. I'm going to try to revisit this sometime in July. I'm going to give it four days to try to learn all about this whole entire situation, and we'll revisit it then. As of right now, we're going to put it on hiatus, and that's what happens here. And it doesn't bode well for the WWF heading into the Bash of the Beach. WCW is not going to have to do any of these things that Titan has requested, and I don't believe they do even following the Bash of the Beach pay-per-view either. But it is funny, Dave points out going back 1991, bringing Ric Flair and kind of implying that he was still with WCW. Maybe not so much as we are right here with Hall and Nash, I don't think. A little bit of a stretch, but yes, Flair did bring in the WCW World Heavyweight title with him. That is absolutely true. But that's it, guys. All the news out of the way. I promise you we're done with the news. But this is the Monday Warfare podcast. We're talking about the Monday Night War, and you can't glimpse over things like this lawsuit here, which is a big part of the battles within. But we finally move on to WWF-TV. It is Monday Night Raw for June 24th, 1996. It's the night after King of the Ring, so we are live! But before we get into Raw, let's talk really quick about King of the Ring results. We go back just a today, June 23rd. Free-for-all match. The body donnas with new manager, Cloudy, scoring a win over the new rockers of Marty Jannetty and Leaf Cassidy. Then on to the pay-per-view in the semifinals of the King of the Ring tournament. Stone Cold Steve Austin over Wild Man Mark Marrow. Austin, of course, getting his lip busted open. Something like 16 stitches, something along those lines, in his lip. Austin leaves the arena after defeating Marrow to go to the hospital to get his lip stitched up in order to return for the finals later in the pay per view. Speaking of the finals, next matchup it's Jake the Snake Roberts scoring a DQ victory over Vader to advance into the finals here of the King of the Ring. Jake going for the DDT. Vader grabbing hold of the referee. Dragging him down with the hold, causing the DQ, Jake the Snake Roberts and Austin now will meet later on in the pay-per-view, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Also on the card, Tag Team Champions smoking guns with Sonny by their side, yet again victorious over Henry and Phineas Godwin. The Ultimate Warrior defeats Jerry Lawler, was there ever any doubt, in just three minutes and 50 seconds, probably for the best. Mankind picks up a win over The Undertaker after manager Paul Bearer accidentally hits The Undertaker over the head with his urn. Mankind then applying the Mandible Claw to get the win. Ahmed Johnson defeated Intercontinental Champion Goldust. Ahmed becomes the first African-American Intercontinental Champion. And then it was time for the King of the Ring Finals. As Stone Cold Steve Austin defeats Jake the Snake Roberts in a rather quick matchup. Again, probably for the best. Austin becomes the 1996 King of the Ring, then goes on to cut a promo where Austin 316 is born and then in the main event WWF champion Shawn Michaels picks up the win over the British Bulldog even with Mr. Perfect announced as the referee for the match well the WWF had one more surprise for Jim Cornette Mr. Perfect was the official for the match however he was the outside official for the match nevertheless when it came down to it it was Hennig who had to make the three count Shawn Michaels picking up the win over the Bulldog Shawn Michaels retaining the WWF title As we move on to Monday Night Raw, June 24th, at the Brown County Expo Center in Green Bay, Wisconsin, in front of 4,660 fans. It's Jerry Lawler and Vince McMahon on commentary, and the show kicks off right away with the viewer discretion advised warning on the TV and Triple H standing in the ring. Let me touch on this real quick. So, I like the idea of getting right into the action, but I've already mentioned this dismal lighting and oftentimes plotting ring action here on Raw as of late. And I'm really starting to miss those overhyped openings with Vince McMahon and the sirens and the shouting and the, the crowds all revved up behind him. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Night Raw. We are live from New York City's Manhattan Say, City Raw, Vince McMahon. I feel like all of those factors played a very important part into grabbing your attention and it exuded energy as Raw kicks off, especially a live episode of Raw like this one here. It's great to evolve the product. I understand the idea of, hey, let's be fresh. Let's kick off the show with action already getting ready to go in the ring. But some things, they just don't need to be fixed. And I feel like this is one of those times where I talked about it last week. WCW stepping forward and the WWF maybe taking a step backward here in revolutionizing the TV product. But I digress. And we roll on with Monday Night Raw for June 24th. Triple H, already in the ring, he is scheduled to take on the new Intercontinental Champion Ahmed Johnson. Should also mention Triple H in his corner, Julie Bernardi, his latest flavor of the week. This match is apparently non-title for Mr. Triple H, who was originally slated to be the 1996 King of the Ring, but that's okay because he'll be running the company in 2022. And hey, I should note Harvey Whippleman, the referee here again this week And the crowd, pretty hot for Ahmed Johnson. While we see some basic overpowering as the match gets going, Ahmed just too strong for Triple H, at least here in the mid 90s. Ahmed even blocking a Triple H hip toss and taking Triple H's head off with a nasty looking clothesline. No shocker there. Finally, though, Johnson misses a charge at Hunter and trips, pulls the rope down, sending Ahmed Johnson over the top rope and out to the floor. And it's Triple H with a baseball slide drop kick, And a good one at that. Then on the outside, Hunter sends Ahmed into the steel steps and the ring post as we get an insert promo from Goldust, who is now the former Intercontinental Champion, having been defeated by Ahmed Johnson last night at the King of the Ring. Goldust says, I'll be back. Terminator 1984. Actually, I think Goldust says 83, but it was 1984. Essentially, Goldie wanting revenge and his Intercontinental title back sending us into a commercial break back from break it would appear helmsley had control during the commercial but ahmed fires up battling back with a series of big right hands but misses a charge into the corner and triple h comes off the top rope but lands smack dab into an ahmed bear hug johnson doesn't seem like he knows what he wants to do with hunter so he gives him an inverted atomic drop out of a bear hug very awkward looking there But it is Johnson with an Irish whip into the corner on Triple H who does the Shawn Michaels flip up and back down into the ring into an Ahmed Johnson press slam for a two count. From there, it's a nasty looking spine buster from Ahmed, but Triple H counters the Pearl River Plunge with a backdrop. Trips then unloads with a series of forearms to the jaw of Ahmed and begins smacking the shit out of Ahmed's face and head. You can hear the slaps. What is the five fingers? Say to the face! (laughs) What? (laughs) Slap! <laughs> Just slap! And now it's Triple H who sends Ahmed into the ropes for a backdrop, but Ahmed stops short and Johnson with the Pearl River Plunge out of nowhere to retain the title in 12 and a half minutes. I wrote finish was abrupt, but it gets Ahmed's finisher over. Solid opponent for his first full day as champion. And I never thought I'd see the day Ahmed Johnson would be going 12-plus minutes into a match, but here we are, back-to-back nights. Ahmed, I think he did something like 15 minutes with Goldust, and here again with Triple H tonight, over 12 minutes. And as you might imagine, this is what it sounds like. Not very good, but not nearly as bad as I feared. Still, not very good. Luckily, though, the crowd was live and hot for Ahmed Johnson all throughout the match. The entrance and the finish specifically, the fans really support Ahmed Johnson. And speaking of Ahmed, he remains in the ring for an interview with Doc Hendricks. Immediately, Hendricks has to point out that Ahmed Johnson is the first ever African-American intercontinental champion. Johnson responds, first of all, Mike, I mean, Doc. Kayfabe, Ahmed, kayfabe. Ahmed says he's proud of his feat of becoming IC champion, but he is not defending the belt just for the African-Americans, but all races. Ahmed will defend the belt for the people. Johnson goes on to say, and if sweet lips, that's gold dust, wants some more of Johnson. If Goldie wants his IC title back, he can come and get it. Ahmed Johnson, the new IC champion, looking to defend against all comers. As we head into a break, we get a King of the Ring encore commercial tomorrow night, Tuesday night. It'll be the encore presentation of the King of the Ring pay-per-view. And they make this pay-per-view look like a million bucks here. Good job by production here. Every clip that was worth a damn from the pay-per-view, they put it all in one commercial here to get you to buy the replay tomorrow night and back from break tag team action with the body donnas who ha- still have cloudy in their corner taking on the team of the brooklyn brawler and jerry fox sunny of course has to join on commentary because why not and over the course of the match we get commentary from sunny to which demelt says sunny said she was bringing in a singles wrestler my guess is it'll be ron simmons because of that age old pro wrestling heat attempting tradition of matching a black man with a white woman well dave ain't wrong there Before we get into the action, we see clips of the body Donna's manager contest. So it wasn't a complete waste, I suppose. At least a few people got their pictures and videos on TV. The Donna's with the basics on the brawler here in the ring. Skip with the flying head scissors to try and rally the live crowd to no applause. I wrote, yikes. This is the first hour of the taping and the crowd absolutely dead for the body Donna's. And then the brawler taking over on control with a nasty clothesline to skip. The brawler treating Skip like he was the red rooster. And after Brawler finally gains control, he tags in Jerry Fox, who has very little success. The Don has come back with a double flapjack on Fox. Zip tries the old doctor bomb, the gut wrench into a power bomb, and Fox barely gets his arm situated before he has it dislocated. Fox didn't seem to know what Tom Pritchard was going there with the gut wrench into the power bomb hold and tried to keep his arm wrapped around the waist of Pritchard, which wasn't a good idea. At the last minute, he did tuck it in, and, and a wise decision by Fox there. As the action continues, skip, though, with a top-rope Frankensteiner on Fox, and then we see Jerry Fox visibly turn his entire body 180 degrees on the mat. Blatantly obvious for Tom Pritchard to hit the top-rope butt drop, even though Fox, had he watched a body Donnas match prior to this, would have realized he didn't need to turn. Just a rough night for Jerry Fox here in the ring, but the body Donnas do pick up the win in just 3 minutes and 55 seconds, and then we get some post-match cloudy shenanigans, as she chases Sonny away from ringside. And all this match was was a squash to get Cloudy versus Sonny over. The crowd didn't even care at all for the body Donnas here. And the entire commentary and camera work, the focus was on the sunny cloudy bit all day long. The Donnas didn't even get to celebrate the win after the match as the camera was more focused on Cloudy chasing Sonny up the aisleway. And I should also note all throughout commentary, Sonny and Jerry Lawler referring to Cloudy as she not even acknowledging it was clearly a man, Jimmy Shoulders, because that makes it more funny, pal. And then post-match, in a quote-unquote comedy bit, Cloudy stalks after Jerry Lawler at ringside, who was so scared he removes his headset and jumps into the crowd. Now that's comedy, pal. So you're live, and this is how you combat Holland Nash in WCW. Unfucking believable And I said this for the last couple weeks on Monday Warfare, I said Cloudy was a one-off at the King of the Ring pre-show. I honestly didn't remember this shit lasting more than one night, but clearly it did. And it continues on to the Tuesday night Superstars taping as well, so Cloudy made it through three days with the WWF and will appear on TV into early July, it would appear. And it's just too bad we never get that epic Cloudy versus Sunny payoff. It's funny as shit, pal. (laughs) Ha ha! And we're off to a video package. A video package of The Rockers? No, not the new and improved Rockers, but rather the original Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, on my TV screen here. In 1996, it's a Rockers Explodes video package. Setting up next week's match on Raw between Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, they put over the Rockers' success as a team, Shawn Michaels turning on Jannetty and both men capturing the Intercontinental title, and then Vince McMahon completely buries Marty Jannetty by saying, and while Shawn's star continued to rise, Marty's burned out. It's already calling Jannetty a has-been here. I wrote, wow. Essentially burying Jannetty as any type of competition to Shawn Michaels or anyone for that matter. And it doesn't help at the end of the video, we get a picture of both Shawn and Marty. Of course, Shawn Michaels, the new WWF champion. On the other side of the image, it's Marty Jannetty with a, a big peace sign doing the new Rockers Goofy gimmick there. Talk about trying to bury someone. And of those of you who have listened to the Wrestling Memory Grenade show, the 1993 Project, you know that back in 1993... Sean and Marty had a couple of classics on Monday Night Raw. I guess we'll see what they do here in 1996 next week on Monday Warfare. I won't hold my breath. Raw goes on, six-man tag team action, standing in the ring at Savio Vega, Barry Horowitz still here, and Portuguese man-o-war Aldo Montoya taking on the team of Camp Cornette. That's Vader, Owen Hart, and the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, accompanied to the ring by manager Jim Cornette, as well as Diana Smith, Cornette, though, joins commentary and talks the upcoming pay-per-view. Well, we're already a day out from King of the Ring. Let's start promoting next month's pay-per-view. Why not? The In Your House International Incident. And the match was booked at the end of last night's pay-per-view, the main event of In Your House International Incident. We'll see. The Bulldog, Owen Hart, Invader taking on the, wow, look at this team, of the WWF champion Shawn Michaels, Intercontinental champion Ahmed Johnson, and Warrior Man. Warrior Man here. The Ultimate Warrior, Shawn Michaels, and Ahmed Johnson. Whoo! Talk about stacking the deck. At least that's the way it stands for now. As the match gets going, though, it's tried and true Horowitz versus Owen Hart. We've seen it from the beginning. When Owen started in the WWF as the Blue Blazer, he made the rounds against Barry Horowitz. Then when he came back in the end of 1991 as part of New Foundation, one of, if not Owen's, first televised match in a tag team match with Jim Neidhart. One of their opponents was Barry Horowitz, and Owen really got to show his stuff with Barry in the ring there as well. That still sticks out to me vividly, going all the way back more than 30 years ago. And here we are again, like I said, tried and true. It is Owen Hart and Barry Horowitz in the ring to start. And Barry actually dominates Owen throughout the entire time these two men are in the ring. So Horowitz still here, though not for long. His full-time run will end here in just a couple of weeks with the WWF. Barry may pop back up for a job or two, but his full-time run, the days of Horowitz wins, well, that's over. So we get our taste of Horowitz and Owen, then it's time for Bulldog and Savio Vega to take over in the ring. Vega bests the Bulldog early on, but Vader tags in and takes over on Savio with a short-arm clothesline. However, Vega manages to duck a second clothesline and lands a nice-looking spinning kick that drops the big man Vader. Wow. Then Savio with a super kick that sends Vader on his ass in the heel corner, and Vader, he just looks up and stares at the Bulldog like, what the fuck just happened? I wrote LOL, just kind of funny, Vader just sitting there, confused that he had just gotten knocked out his keister by Savio Vega. Nothing to be ashamed of. Unless you're trying to get over as a monster heel. And now it's Aldo Montoya's turn in the ring as he takes on Owen Hart. Nice drop kicks early on by Montoya, but he runs into an Owen spinning heel kick, and the heels take over. It's the beginning of the end for the Portuguese Man of war as the Bulldog in with the delayed suplex. Vader, with a nasty-looking choke slam and an avalanche in the corner, Bulldog back inside running power slam on poor Aldo. And they're still not done yet. Tagging Owen Hart back in for the sharpshooter and the submission. Camp Cornette just ran the gauntlet on poor Aldo Montoya here. And the faces don't even bother to help make the save. The heels get the submission win here in just four minutes and 17 seconds. And I wrote with Barry Horowitz on the way out. It just seemed weird to job Aldo Montoya here. And in this fashion, though they do need to get this Camp Cornette unit over heading into the In Your House pay-per-view, that's for sure. And uh-oh, guys, it's distrusity time. As we head off to some random video somewhere in a gym, we see a young man in a gym working out, lifting weights, getting in shape. As we hear someone off-camera stating, not everyone works out to gain Herculean strength or train to reach Olympic status. Some simply live in defiance of limitations and to exceed expectations. Unleash the warrior inside you. Unleash the warrior man, warrior man here, inside you. And let me put this video in context for those of you who don't remember it or haven't seen it or or don't plan to watch it. This young man working out at the end of the video, we see that he's in a wheelchair as he rolls himself out of the gym to end the segment. Unleash the warrior inside you. Defy limitations. Exceed expectations. It's a great motto and belief system, though I don't really know what this has to do with really anything here on WWF Raw, nor the Ultimate Warrior, for that matter. He had nothing to do with this segment. Just really oddly placed here in this show. But when we cut back to Raw, it's Brian Pillman now at ringside, and he's having a word with Vince McMahon. Pillman wants his goddamned money. Sorry, Lord. And Vince points out that Pillman isn't even able to wrestle yet, I guess implying that Pillman can't be paid until he actually wrestles a match. Makes sense. There really wasn't much to this segment, short and uh, no real direction either other than to get Pillman on Raw. Hopefully things pick up there for Brian Pillman. The characters in place, they just have no direction for him. Quite yet, as we head back to the ring, it's main event time here on Raw with The Undertaker, Paul Bearer in his corner, taking on the new King of the Rings Stone Cold Steve Austin, and we are one day removed from the debut of Austin 316 and busted lip and all Steve Austin has enough of The Undertaker's 20-minute entrance and attacks the dead man. Right on. Taker no-sells and takes over as Lawler gets up from commentary trying to interview Paul Bear at ringside about what happened at the King of the Ring pay-per-view. You see, Bear accidentally hit The Undertaker with the urn, costing Taker the match against Mankind. Lawler thinks it was done on purpose, questioning Paul Bear. But the manager won't respond. As King rejoins commentary, he continues to question Paul Bear's allegiance to The Undertaker. Back to the action, the Undertaker sends Austin outside of the ring, into the ring post, into the steel steps, and into the guardrail. The dead man continues to dominate on the offense all the way into a commercial break. Then back from break, it's Steve Austin who takes over with a chop block, then begins to work over the Undertaker's leg, wrapping around the ring post as we get loud chants of R.I.P. out of nowhere in the crowd. And then it's Goldust who comes to ringside, and he too joins commentary. Lots of uninvited guests on commentary tonight. Well, I suppose Sonny was invited, but then we had Jim Cornette, now Goldust. Every match has its own special guest commentator, I suppose. So with Goldust now on commentary, back inside the ring, Steve Austin continues to work The Undertaker's leg over it with a very long and very boring leg lock. The Undertaker does try a comeback, but Austin with another chop block, sending us into a second commercial break. Back from break, it's the conclusion of the match as The Undertaker tries his flying clothesline, but Austin out of the way and Taker misses stone cold gets cocky though and eats a choke slam for his troubles and then as the undertaker scoops stone cold up for the tombstone pile driver gold dust off the commentary and onto the apron gold dust throwing gold glitter into the eyes of the undertaker causing a disqualification due to outside interference the undertaker picks up the dq win in about 16 minutes i wrote and we'll talk about that in just a minute post-match though stone cold once again attacks the dead man but The Undertaker reverses things and Austin wisely bails. Taker then begins his quote-unquote celebration with Paul Bear as Bear holds the urn in the air, The Undertaker down to one knee. But Jerry Lawler's not done with this whole situation yet. He wants to confront Paul Bear once again in the ring with The Undertaker. Not a wise move, King. Lawler on the microphone wants The Undertaker to force Paul Bear to tell the truth that Bear cost Taker the match versus Mankind at King of the Ring on purpose and then explain why. Bear didn't help The Undertaker just now when Goldust interfered in the match. The dead man, though, doesn't want to hear it, and he takes a swipe at the king before Bear holds him back. Lawler jumps out of the ring but continues to insist that Paul Bear is turning on The Undertaker. And nobody buys it because the king is a heel. But he did try to warn everybody. So, first of all, as we jump right into this, Demelt says that The Undertaker Austin match was, quote unquote, long and boring. I wrote, On paper, the new King of the Rings Stone Cold Steve Austin versus the main eventing Undertaker sounds money all day, but this wasn't very good from either end at all. This match was entirely too long for a one-hour program. Psychology was okay, but the offense was slow and boring. And no finish? This helped neither guy. And I should point out, this is the first ever one-on-one meeting between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker, at least on TV anyway. Now, as far as Lawler continuously claiming Bearer purposely screwed The Undertaker, at the King of the Ring pay-per-view, I must have tuned that out during this first run when I was watching this back in 96. I didn't realize they were teasing a Bearer turn as far back as June. Honestly, when it happened at SummerSlam, I really didn't see it coming. But again, there were a lot of segments I tuned out on during this era, and uh, maybe you can see why. So segment of the night. Was it The Undertaker versus Stone Cold? On paper, you, you would have to argue. It couldn't be anything but that. Was it Ahmed Johnson versus Triple H? Or could it have been the Raw debut of Cloudy? Well, wh- why don't we get to segment of the night in just a minute? I got some more notes here I want to run through. I wrote, You've got one live show to compete with Nitro for the next four weeks, and this is what you slapped together. Vince looking to put a big-name main event out there, first time ever, Stone Cold vs. The Undertaker, but let's be honest, it just didn't deliver in the ring. The slow, plodding, WWF-style coupled with the dingy lighting, it just isn't going to compete with the vibrant colors and fast-paced action over on Nitro. It's like the WWF regress, just as WCW made that step forward here, as I pointed out at the beginning of this episode. WCW really coming into their own since the Monday Night War era began? Raw? at the very least at a standstill at this point, in my opinion anyway. I wrote, the WWF backed itself into a corner. They get one shot per month as of right now to go live and give us something huge. But unfortunately, that live episode falls the day after a pay-per-view, which means the day before the encore pay-per-view. And thus, they can't really evolve a storyline too much or give away too much here on this Raw before they squeeze every last cent out of their King of the Ring pay-per-view encore presentation tomorrow night. Now, on paper, I suppose Vince did what he had to do here. He gave us the new King of the Ring versus a top main event attraction in The Undertaker. He got over his new Intercontinental Champion with another big competitive win right out of the gate. Cloudy debuts on Raw to feud with Sonny, which somehow is the entire tag division storyline in a nutshell. Sad, I know. Brian Pillman arrives on the USA Network. Check. Camp Cornette comes off losses at the King of the Ring, but they're headed to main event the next pay-per-view, and they get an impressive win here tonight on Raw. Booking-wise, the stories, they're all right. It all makes sense, but it's just so, so boring. Bland, another good word here. Snoozefest, yet another. The WWF product is just stale, guys, and the few guys that are over, or at least interesting, are stuck in the middle of the rest of the crew, and it's not helping them either. And if this is what we get on the live episode, I fear what lies ahead over the remainder of this Raw taping. Yikes. Oh, uh, no, yeah. Segment of the night. I almost forgot. Tried to uh, sneak away without giving you guys one. I don't know that there is one. I I feel like every time I look at the words Stone Cold versus The Undertaker, you have to pick that. But the reality is it was 16 minutes of nothing with a non-finish. I could give it to them simply because it's a piece of history. It's the first time ever one-on-one Austin versus Taker. But if we're just talking entertainment value here, I may, I I just may have to go with Ahmed Johnson and and Triple H. I don't know. It's a tough one this week. I I guess for wrestling purposes, we'll go Ahmed and Triple H. For historical purposes, I guess you could go Taker and Stone Cold. You guys take your pick. Hey, there's probably some weird people out there that love the cloudy, sunny angle. This is just a hard one. but I I guess just based on what entertained me this time around, I'm going to go Ahmed and Triple H for no real apparent reason. And we move on to WCW and WCW News, as the Macho Man Randy Savage will be on Regis and Kathy Lee on July 2nd. Very interesting, heading into the Bash of the Beach, promoting that big pay-per-view, no doubt, taking on Hall Nash and that mystery man. Savage, a good friend of the show, a good friend, I'm sure, of Regis, or at least an acquaintance of Regis. We all know Kathy Lee really didn't want anything to do with wrestling, but Regis had the wrestlers on the show. What's interesting about this is, up until now, I don't recall getting any WCW guys on the Regis and Kathy Lee show. It was usually the WWF guys. So a big coup here from WCW either way. It appears that the Great American Bash pay-per-view buy rate was merely a .48, or 170,000 buys, slightly up from the god-awful Slamboree pay-per-view, which that's not saying much, but lower than all of the other 1996 pay-per-views. So even with Hall and Nash promised to appear on the Great American Bash, the Great American Bash the second lowest in buy rate here, yet when you look back, still higher than anything from 1995, and for very good reason. And uh, once again, this was part of that hard sell last week. Remember, all throughout the episode of Nitro, they were hard selling the Bash Encore presentation by talking about Mongo's heel turn, Nash Jack knifing Bischoff through the stage floor, and everything else that took place on that pay-per-view. They were hyping it last week to get those big buys after missing out on the live version of the Great American Bash. We'll have to see what Bash at the Beach does. Very curious. And hey, guys, remember when we were doing Monday Warfare last week, Scott Steiner busted out that impressive T-Bone suplex, just launched the Giant across the ring out of nowhere with that T-Bone suplex? Well, reports are that the Giant and WCW management were both upset that Scott Steiner took it upon himself to suplex the Giant across the ring. Living proof that if Scott Steiner wants to throw you, he's going to throw you. Let's talk a little more about who is that third man. We know Scott Hall and Kevin Nash have promised a third man to be part of their team at the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. Meltz claims it was originally slated to be Lex Luger. It appears to have changed because Meltz doesn't see another babyface turning heel so soon after the Mongo angle. Oh, really? Now, supposedly, Bischoff, Hall, and Nash were brainstorming coming up with names that potentially could fill that third man void. Some of the names that came up, I've read, I've heard, were the likes of Brian Adams' crush, and even King Mabel, which is a hard one to buy because, because the click, and Nash in particular, not big fans of Mabel. A lot of people say that's who got Mabel fired from the WWF at the beginning of 1996. It goes all the way back. I, I guess everybody felt Mabel was not exactly the safest working man in the ring, but supposedly according to Kevin Nash's shoot interviews over the years, he told Mabel going into SummerSlam 95, hey man, I got a bad back, just lay off the back, we'll go out there and we'll have the best match we can. If you watch the match back, Mabel literally sits and jumps on Nash's back throughout the matchup. I don't know that it was on purpose, necessarily, but either way, uh, the click had it out for Mabel after that. Then he goes into the feud with The Undertaker, busts his face, and it wasn't too long after that Mabel gone from the company. Supposedly, though, he was talked about here for a third man, which I kind of question, but I guess when you're sitting here trying to figure things out and you have nothing, you throw everything against the wall, including this name Brett the Hitman Hart, who has been made several offers and attempts to get him to jump to WCWC. The Hitman's contract expired shortly after WrestleMania 12, and right now, he is not contractually obligated to appear for any promotion. Brett does agree to work a South African tour with the WWF, however, he doesn't re sign with the World Wrestling Federation, until October of 1996. So right now, here in the midsummer, Bret Hart could have easily jumped to WCW for the money, for the big storyline, for a variety of things. So the main name, and Bischoff has, has mentioned this several times on his podcast as well, the main name they were looking for right now at this point in time was Bret Hart. They were really hoping they could get Bret to solidify this team, this three-man unit going into the Bash of the Beach, but they had to come up with backup plans, of course, because the hitman just simply wasn't giving in. He wasn't even hinting that he would give in to the idea of jumping to WCW. And as for Meltzer implying that Lex Luger was the original name discussed, Eric Bischoff has also stated it was never to be Lex Luger. And Bischoff has further said if they couldn't get Bret Hart, the next man up in his mind, there could only be one other man and Hulk Hogan. But Bischoff also thought that would be a hard get to get Hogan to convince Hogan to turn heel. So the fallback plan after that was the Stinger. So in Bischoff's mind, the top three names that he wanted to get for this spot, Bret Hart, then Hulk Hogan, and Sting also being considered if Hogan went back on the discussions. What discussions, you might ask? Well, apparently after watching the Great American Bash pay-per-view, watching Eric Bischoff get jackknifed through that stage, Hulk Hogan, he made a little call to Eric Bischoff, old Eazy-E, the next day. uh, Looking to talk a little business, brother. When there's money to be made, you won't find the Hulkster too far away. And that's all the news for this week here in the world of WCW. So we move on to Monday Nitro, June 24th, 1996 in Charlotte, North Carolina, in front of 5,638 fans, 4,200 paid. And we kick things off yet again. Hour one, it's Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco. As Tony announces no bitch off again this week, wise decision, I think. Gotta sell the bump for more than a week. That nasty powerbomb off the stage, I would have liked to have seen Bischoff out for for multiple weeks after a spot like that, especially to a non-wrestler. But at least for this week, we know Bischoff out for the second week in a row selling that powerbomb spot. As Larry has an interesting spiel to open the show, talking about Alexander the Great and having no more new worlds to conquer. Well, there's a new world now. A new world indeed, Larry. And this week, we get the clip. They didn't show it last week because they wanted you to buy that Encore presentation. But this week, we go back in time to the Great American Bash, and we see that jackknife powerbomb diesel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Kevin Nash jackknife. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Kevin Nash powerbombing Eric Bischoff off the stage. And as we cut back to the announcers, we hear loud, and I mean loud, we want flare chants. And we'll hear those all night long. Two hours here of Nitro. We want flair all night long. Well, we are in Charlotte, North Carolina, after all. And before we go to the ring, we actually go back to mean Gene Oakland standing by in the locker room. He's standing by with Sting, the Macho Man, and Lex Luger, the three men scheduled to main event bash at the beach against Hall Nash and their Mystery Man, and all three men in Stinger face paint because they are united for WCW versus these Outsiders. Uh Aha! Savage gets his point across about the six-man tag and walks off to leave the room for the tag team champions to talk about the main event here tonight on Nitro. But first, we see a clip of Sting confronting Scott Hall on Nitro a few weeks back. Sting says he is fine with wrestlers coming in and wanting to make a statement. He gets it. But he doesn't like how they did it. What they did to an announcer, not a wrestler. Luger then goes on to say that he supports the WW, or the WCW. And I don't believe this is on purpose, guys. For anyone thinking that Luger or anyone was clever enough to sneak this line in, the way it was sold, Luger almost says the WWF, but I don't think he meant to. As Sting and Luger are talking bash at the beach, the Steiner brothers interrupt the promo. You see, tonight, it's a triangle tag team match for the main event. The tag team titles on the line. Sting and Luger will have to defend against the Harlem Heat, as well as the Steiner brothers. And as the Steiner's interrupt, Scott lets Sting and Luger know that the Steiner's have their back against the Outsiders. But tonight, the tag titles are on the line, and the Steiner's want the belts. And it doesn't matter if the Steiner's beat Sting, Luger, or either member of Harlem Heat to get those belts. And speaking of Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray, they stroll into the interview segment next. We got all three teams in here as Booker remembers way back in Las Vegas, January. Clash of the champion with Lex Luger nailed him with a roll of quarters, and Sting just stood by and watched as Luger and Sting stole the WCW tag team titles. Booker calls the champs two peas in a pot. That's pod, Booker. From there, pushing and arguing begins between all three teams as Mean Gene shouts, Knock it off! As we head back to ringside. So we sell the Bash at the Beach main event first, and then we sell Nitro's main event in just a few minutes time with a backstage promo. Good job there getting everything into one simple little interview. It did feel a little crammed, it felt a little rushed, but at least we know what's going on. And that leaves room for, well, hopefully some great action, right? Well, we'll have to wait and see as we kick things off. It is the Blue Bloods, Lord Steven Regal, Squire David Taylor, accompanied the ring by Jeeves, and hey, it's the Earl of Eaton, Earl Robert Eaton as well at ringside here for the Blue Bloods in this match, taking on the team of Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge, Public Enemy. And here's an old school WWF gimmick. To start the match, we get an insert promo up in the corner by Public Enemy talking about their upcoming match against the Nasty Boys at Bash at the Beach. It's going to be a double dog collar match. In fact, Public Enemy, carry dog collars to the ring for this match against the blue bloods but they're not able to use them nick patrick makes them put away the dog collars then calls for the bell that never really sounds If the bell doesn't make a sound does the match really exist steven regal thinks so as he drops rocko rock early on and then regal busts out his own version of some hip-hop dancing really good stuff there, easily a jiff all day long but regal turns around and runs into a rock drop kick that sends the lordship out to the floor Dave Taylor then tags in and whips Rocco into the corner, but Rocco springs to the top rope with a backflip onto his feet. Very impressive there. Rocco rushes at Taylor, who tries a schoolboy, but Rocco has no idea and they completely botch the spot with Taylor rolling Rocco up into the turnbuckles. Just a complete mess. You guys got to see that spot to believe it. Just awful. Steven Regal back inside as Rock tries a springboard moonsault, but misses in the center of the ring, and we get more dancing from Lord Steven. Awesome shit. Two dances in one match from Steve Regal. Gotta love it. The Blue Bloods get heat on Rocco Rock as we learn that the outsiders have arrived and are in the parking lot. The action goes on as Regal and Rocco collide in the ring and hot tags to both David Taylor and Johnny Grunge. Grunge runs wild on Taylor until Regal jumps in to stop a count, and it's a four-way melee from there. Nick Patrick distracted by the whole mess. Earl Robert Eaton trips up Johnny Grunge on the floor. Johnny landing on his own cast. Remember Grunge with a broken hand? landing headfirst on his own cast. Interesting spot there. The Blue Bloods then double-team Rock to the floor before Taylor turns around right into a cast shot. From Johnny Grunge, Public Enemy will steal the win. Five minutes and 47 seconds. I wrote more sloppy and mistimed stuff here this week from Public Enemy. Talk about a contrast of styles. This felt like a Saturday night match all day long. Lots of screwiness there. Commercial bumper heading to the break. It's a Harlem Heat promo as they talk some more about the triangle match. Coming up here later tonight, Heat looking to take back those tag team titles. Turn it on and rip the knob off. You pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces. Join me, Ray Russell and my co-host Steven Ekstad as we take a trip down memory lane to wrestling history's past as we analyze and dissect complete years of wrestling history from your favorite promotions. From Hulkamania to Mania, from the Midnight Express to the Lex Express, which promotion are we deep diving into next? What year have we time-traveled back to now? Tune in and find out on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. And remember to follow us on Twitter, at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Home of the free prize giveaway. And we're back from commercial break, and it's Kevin Sullivan slated to take on Kip A B. AB must be local. I don't see him making the drive for this one at all. Kevin Sullivan, Jimmy Hart by his side, power walking to the ring and attacks AB immediately first flinging A.B. out of the ring, onto the floor, and then over the guardrail and into the crowd. The fight goes on. It's a one-sided fight anyway. Sullivan beats down A.B., dragging him up the steps into the concession stand area, even slams him into the subway counter. Sullivan tries his best to drag poor A.B. into the ladies' room, but security Doug Dillinger won't let it happen. He steps in and stops it. We hear a bell sound. We eventually learn that Kevin Sullivan has been disqualified. Though the match never really gets going, About 90 seconds of action, if you want to call it that. Sullivan beat up poor A.B. from the ring to the floor, into the crowd, up the stands, into the concession stands. Sullivan sending a message, no doubt, to Chris Benoit. That feud has not yet come to a conclusion. Speaking of which, we go back to ringside. Sullivan has made his way back into the ring where mean Gene Okerlund stands by to talk to both Sullivan and his manager, Jimmy Hart. Sullivan says they're in the home of the horsemen. Yet Sullivan says he's walking out alive. So Sullivan now has invaded the House of the Horsemen. Soon, Chris Benoit will come to Daytona Beach at Bash of the Beach, where Sullivan dwells. So Sullivan has invaded the House of the Horsemen, so to speak. And now, Benoit will take on Sullivan yet again, Bash at the Beach, in Sullivan's hometown of Daytona Beach, Florida. As we get more We Want Flair chants throughout this promo. In fact, so loud that they drown out Mean Gene Oakland near the end of the promo. As of yet, no Ric Flair here in the arena. And uh uh-oh, guys. Our world is about to change. Enter the realm. Glacier, still coming, July 1996. We'll have to see about that. Poor Ray Lloyd. And after another break, it's back to the ring. More action. Cruiserweight champion Dean Malenko taking on hard work Bobby Walker. And Walker flips over the top rope, landing inside the ring for his big grand entrance. Let's see what he can do in the actual matchup, shall we? And before we get going, I did notice uh, Walker has uh, really thickened up as of late. Must have found him some of that leftover Ico Pro. You've got to want it. As the match gets going, Malenko works Walker over on the mat early on. Malenko applies a reverse chinlock camel clutch type maneuver. Nice looking hold there. Would expect nothing less. Dean then busts out a big powerbomb and turns it over into the Texas Cloverleaf, but the crowd is up on their feet, and a confused Malenko releases the hold. What the fuck is this? Disco Inferno coming to ringside. Disco on the microphone says his CD just went gold. Now hit his music, and they do, for whatever reason. Disco Inferno's music begins to play over the speakers as Milenko and Walker try to have a match in the ring. Disco completely ignores that there's a match going on and enters the ring to dance during the action. With Dean distracted by this whole entire mess, Walker takes over control. But it doesn't take Walker long to become distracted by Disco himself. Disco Inferno up on the middle turnbuckle, dancing to the fans with the music playing while there's a match going on inside the ring. Now Malenko takes back over. He tries a monkey flip, but Walker impressively flips over and lands right on his feet. But he lands right in the corner where Disco Inferno's dancing. Hard work Bobby Walker holds up his hands. What the fuck is going on here? Distracted again by the Disco Inferno. Malenko from behind with a dropkick. Dropkicks Walker in the back, right into the posterior of Disco, sending Inferno over the top rope and out to the floor. Meanwhile, Malenko executes a Northern Lights suplex, and Dean will pick up the win in four minutes and thirty-seven seconds. Well, I've got a few things to talk about here. First, we'll talk about hard work, Bobby Walker. We saw this last time with Walker, uh, one of the uh, first couple episodes, I believe, of the two-hour editions of Nitro. He's athletic, no doubt. He's bulked up now too. But he's he's just not good in the ring, and he's been training, quote-unquote training, for at least four or five years now. Remember, Bobby Walker first appeared in WCW-TV back in 1992. So this guy's been, quote-unquote, training for a good four or five years. And even though he's performing this way in 1996, Walker somehow still manages to keep a contract with WCW into the year 2000, before he's finally released. Of course, Bobby Walker would go on to sue WCW for alleged racial discrimination. Now, in my honest opinion, the guy should have been thankful for having a job for so many years to begin with, since he was honestly never really able to put it all together in the ring. Now, Walker went on to settle out of court after the WWF purchased WCW for a quote-unquote large payoff, whatever that means, and I hope it was worth it, Bobby. The guys in that lawsuit with Walker were equally untalented, in my opinion, including Hardbody Harrison, who went on to receive a life-in-prison jail sentence for a sex trafficking ring and forced labor. Now, Bobby Walker, also the nephew of the legendary Thunderbolt Patterson, who also had his share of run-ins with controversy. Thunderbolt filing racial discrimination suits in wrestling as far back as the 1970s, and possibly rightfully so in some instances there. Unfortunately, that led to Patterson being blacklisted by most of the wrestling companies at the time. But Thunderbolt, also one of the early ones to talk a union in wrestling, which also didn't make him very popular with many of the promoters. But yeah, this was what it was as far as the match goes. Dean Malenko and their hard work Bobby Walker, undercard guy, they try to give him a couple of little flashy moves in there, but really it's all about telling the story of the upcoming match between Malenko and Disco Inferno at the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. Speaking of which, mean Gene Okerlund back in the ring to talk to Dean Malenko, but Disco Inferno standing behind them men in the ring with his gold record, teasing like he's going to hit Dean with it, but Malenko catches Disco and has a few words for him instead. And Disco replies, this show is about ratings, and Dean and Bobby Walker were stinking up the joint. Disco says that Malenko may be the man of a thousand holds, but the Inferno, he just sold a million CDs. Malenko replies, he is the man of a thousand holds, but he will only need one hold to take Disco out at Bash of the Beach. So apparently, yes, that is a match, Bash of the Beach Cruiserweight title. What Disco did to deserve this title shot? Unknown to me, my response was, ew, and how? So Disco Inferno giving Malenko props as being a great wrestler, but this is about ratings and you're not entertaining, says Disco Inferno. I have a feeling Dean's going to show Disco just how entertaining he can be at the upcoming pay-per-view as we roll on commercial bumper once again. It's Arn Anderson talking his upcoming match against the Rock and Roll Express back at WCW. Arn says the horsemen of the 90s are even meaner than that of the 1980s. Tonight is the night that music dies. And we're back to action. It's Eddie Guerrero in the ring, taking on the Barbarian. I feel like we haven't seen Eddie a whole lot as of late here on Nitro. It's good to see him back in here. Feeling out process begins as Barbarian goes for a press slam early on, but Eddie wiggles himself free. Barbarian, though, shoots Guerrero into the air, and Eddie, in midair, turns it into a dropkick. Great rotation by Eddie Guerrero there. Barbarian launching him in the air, and Eddie's spinning his body around, turning it into a dropkick, taking the Barbarian down. Guerrero then tries a springboard reverse body block, but Barbarian catches him. And smashes Eddie into the turnbuckle as the crowd applauds. Not only is this a horseman type crowd, this is a heel crowd. They're just not happy with the baby faces here. The crowd applauding Barbarian's offense on Eddie Guerrero, and Barbarian next with a nasty power bomb, spiking Guerrero into the mat. Once again gets a loud pop from the crowd, and then an equally nasty pump handle slam from the barbarian as well, gets a near fall. Barbarian just blasts Guerrero with a power bomb and a pump handle slam, drove him down into the mat. However, Barb misses a charge in the corner and Eddie leaps up onto his shoulders into a victory roll position. Eddie tries to spin around into a Hurricane Rana, but they get all tangled up in the spot and botch it completely. As Eddie gets one of his legs wrapped around the neck of Barbarian and the other leg wrapped around under his arm, they roll through anyway into sort of what would be a Hurricane Rana, but they realize the move was botched and they don't try to cover it up and go for a pinfall there. Wise move by both guys. Eddie, though, comes right back with a really impressive Saito suplex. Guerrero goes back up top, but he gets crotched. To the crowd's delight, the crowd pops when Eddie Guerrero gets crotched across the top rope. What is this, Philadelphia? Barbarian follows Guerrero to the top rope for an overhead belly-to-belly superplex launching Guerrero across the ring, and Eddie wisely rolls out to the floor. I don't know if he had much of a choice after that move. Eddie finds his way back out of the apron and back to the top rope. Barbarian up there with him once again. This time, Barb looking for a top rope superplex. And as he hooks Eddie for the superplex, Guerrero almost falls backwards off the top rope to the floor. And if Barb wasn't so strong and agile, they both could have taken a really nasty spill to the outside there off the top rope. Luckily, everything works out. Boltman's standing on the top rope. Barbarian goes for the superplex. Eddie up in the air. But he shifts weight and lands on top of Barbarian. According to Larry Zbysko on commentary, Barbarian slipped. And Eddie Guerrero lands on top on the way down. Guerrero lands on top of the Barbarian. One, two, three. Eddie Guerrero sneaks out with a victory here over the Barbarian. Five minutes and 35 seconds. And the crowd not exactly impressed here. Crowd clearly here to see the horseman. Ric Flair uh, booing Eddie Guerrero here for the win. As for the match, I wouldn't really call it good. Wasn't exactly bad either. Some fun spots, some sloppy spots. Overall, not good in general, and the, and the weird contrast of style booking continues here tonight. First, it was the Blue Bloods and the public enemy, now Eddie Guerrero and the Barbarian. And we stay in the ring, Mean Gene and once again standing by. This time, Eddie Guerrero. Eddie returns from the Super Juniors tournament over in New Japan. And for some odd reason, we go back several months to Uncensored, the Uncensored pay-per-view. We see clips of Conan beating Eddie Guerrero after an accidental low blow from Conan and Guerrero admits he would like a U.S. title rematch against Conan after this. Kind of interesting, as this is really pulled out of nowhere. I don't know if this was initially the plan or what the deal was, but they referenced something from months ago on a pay-per-view, Battle of Baby Faces, U.S. champion Conan, accidentally, we, we assume accidentally, low-blowing Guerrero, Guerrero up for a leapfrog, Conan's head first into the groin area of Guerrero, down goes Eddie, and Conan picks up the victory there. I won't say he stole the win, but... It is what it is, and Eddie looking for a rematch. I don't know that he ever gets it. And with the video footage queued up, it was obviously a planned part of this segment. Also during this promo, Guerrero says he wishes his name was part of that six-man tag at the Bash of the Beach, but he wishes those who were selected the best in beating Hall Nash and their mystery man. Action rolls on. It's the returning Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, the Rock and Roll Express, taking on the horsemen of Arndt Anderson and Chris Benoit. Steve McMichael in their corner. And this is actually billed as a rematch from this past Saturday night where the Rock and Rolls actually got a victory over Anderson and Benoit, albeit on a disqualification. And it's the heel horseman out first to loud cheers from the fans. What else were you expecting? The Rock and Rolls are out next to a chorus of loud boos. As we count down the clock to hour two here on Nitro, Bobby Heenan joins commentary and we head into a commercial break before the match gets going. Back from break, it is hour two now, and the action begins, and we get a quick shot of the VIP table, supposedly set up for Ric Flair, but they state that Flair isn't coming out due to Randy Savage being in the building. In reality, the crowd would erupt. WCW just doesn't want Flair over like that, at least not as a babyface. Action in the ring, Ricky Morton with some quote-unquote quick moves, well they were once upon a time anyway, on Chris Benoit and lands them very sloppy, I might add. Morton barely clears a leapfrog here in a sloppy Lucha-style arm drag to boot. Then Ricky almost overshoots Benoit on a reverse crossbody block attempt as well. Morton looking a little rusty here for primetime TV, but Arn Anderson tags in and the crowd pops huge for everything that Arne does, because why wouldn't they? Anderson, though, lures Morton outside to chase him around the ring, and Ricky runs right into a hiding Chris Benoit's clothesline on the floor. As you can imagine, another big pop from the fans here in Charlotte. And now Ricky Morton plays the role of, well, Ricky Morton. He's down on the mat, taking a beating as the horsemen dominate. Ricky eventually crawls through the legs of Arn though, and a hot tag to partner Robert Gibson. All four men in the ring now is referee Randy Anderson with the illegal Arn and Morton over in the corner. It's Robert Gibson for a backslide on Chris Benoit, but Steve McMichael on the apron, blasts Gibson across the head with the Halliburton, and Benoit covers to steal the win in about eight minutes, or six minutes if the bell sounded. Before the commercial break, not really sure about that one. Either way, it was next to a nothing match. Nothing really happened here whatsoever. Post-match, these aren't Anderson dump Ricky Morton on his head with the DDT, just for the hell of it. And the Horsemen win, and the fans love it. So we got about six minutes of action here, and this was not your classic Horsemen rock and rolls match, I'll say that much. Given the time they had, the Express were barely more than glorified jobbers in this one. Gibson looked pretty good in the ring. Morton was having an off night. It is what it is, but there really wasn't a whole lot for the Rock and Rolls to do here. And Arne and Benoit will secure that win. Post-match, however, it's Desperado Joe Gomez. Gomez rushing to the ring like a complete idiot in between three horsemen. Are you kidding me? The horsemen beating down on the Rock and Rolls. Desperado Joe Gomez to make the save. This guy has made mistake after mistake, and he's only been here well, l- less than a month. We learned that Gomez is scheduled to wrestle Steve McMichael at the Bash of the Beach for some odd reason and he's out here now in between Chris Benoit, Arn Anderson, and Steve McMichael with the Halliburton. What do you guys think happens next? Does Joe Gomez clear the ring? Of course not. Gomez immediately goes right after Mongo. Again, that'll be his opponent at the Batch of the Beach, Joe also probably looking for a little revenge on the Horseman who laid him out a couple weeks back in the backstage area. And as you might imagine, the Desperado almost immediately blasted across the head with the Halliburton and then paintbrushed by Mongo like a bitch. The horseman beating down on poor Joe Gomez, doing Gomez zero favors here in the booking. And finally, it's the Macho Man Randy Savage and Kevin Green in to run off the horseman. We are in Charlotte, Green, a part of the Panthers at this point in time, so it's the Macho Man and Kevin Green out to make the save for the Rock and Rolls Joe Gomez, whomever it may be. Honestly, it's probably just Savage and Green looking to get at the horseman. Either way, they clear the ring of the bad guys here. And the fans, they're really not all that happy about it. And we're off to the locker room. Mean Gene Oakland standing by with Ric Flair and all of his ladies. It's woman, oh woman, won't you marry me now? The lovely Miss Elizabeth with all of Randy Savage's money. And now Deborah McMichael as well. Flair puts over the horsemen winning their match and celebrating their big win. The rest of the horsemen then join Ric Flair for the promo. Everybody proud of themselves what they just did to the rock and rolls to Joe Gomez. Ric Flair briefly mentions his match with Conan upcoming at the Bash at the Beach flair gunning for the u.s title and they're wisely doing this promo backstage keeping rick flair out of the arena and in the locker room area instead for the fans at home though honestly i would have been intrigued to hear the crowd's response to an appearance on tv of rick flair here we just don't get it this week no worries though the local fans will get rick flair over the macho man in a dark match later here after nitro concludes so they still get them some nature boy Into a commercial break, we get a bumper promo from DDP talking about his upcoming match against Alex Wright. And then back from break, we hear from Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan as they discuss the WCW versus the Outsiders. Heenan says WCW doesn't know who the third man is, so the Outsiders have the advantage. Tony says the landscape of professional wrestling could change forever at Bash at the Beach. Well, Tony, Bash at the Beach does change the landscape. I don't know about forever, but it will be huge. And back to the ring. It is Dust Wonder teamed Alex Wright, taking on the Lord of the Ring DDP. And I don't think we've seen Alex Wright here on Nitro all that much in recent weeks as well. Good to see Alex Wright back out here as the Lord of the Ring title is on the line. Alex Wright gets the better of the cocky Page early on, but barely taps Paige on a dropkick and Diamond sells it anyway, goes sailing through the ropes out of the ring. Alex Wright whiffs on the dropkick DDP selling it anyway. Back inside, though, it's Paige countering a suplex with a Fujiwara armbar takedown. Really nice spot there from Paige, who's still trying to figure out his arsenal. Really great counter here. Paige countering a suplex, turning it over into a Fujiwara armbar takedown, but then releasing the hold immediately. Had to question that. Action goes on, No DDP with a gut wrench gut buster, but misses a punt kick, a running punt kick, and takes a big, giant bump onto his back. Alex Wright then makes the big comeback, jumping back kick and a high top rope. Double axe handle gets a two count. Alex Wright then out to the apron and a springboard drop kick sends DDP out to the floor. Alex Wright with those really long legs barely clears the top rope on a plancha, but it connects anyway. Wright then tries a slingshot splash back into the ring, but lands onto the knees of DDP. Page then capitalizes, bang, diamond cutter. Gets the win in just four minutes and ten seconds. DDP's finisher starting to get over with the fans. That diamond cutter really getting over with the fans, but the match itself dragged out. Just felt like it dragged out far too long, and it was only a four-minute match, and Alex Wright's been pretty decent. At this point, you have to question, should DDP be trying to hit the diamond cutter early and often, kind of Magnum TA-esque with the belly-to-belly in the mid-80s? Now, I know DDP's the heel here, and he's nowhere nearly over at the level of a Magnum TA, But the move, the move itself, the diamond cutter is starting to get over. It's just these opponents or these matches DDP's having with these guys. They just feel like they're dragging out and you're just waiting for the diamond cutter at this point. But we're all learning as we go as Mean Gene back in the ring talking to DDP and we learn that it's going to be Diamond Dallas Page versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan at the Bash of the Beach for the Lord of the Ring title in a taped fist match. Who booked this shit? I wrote no. And why? First Malenko versus Disco Inferno. Now we learn DDP and Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a tape fist match, no less? During the promo, DDP calls it a conspiracy. And I really can't argue with that. Page says that Duggan has never lost a tape fist match, but nobody gets up from the diamond cutter. Page says nobody is taking his Lord of the Ring ring away from him. Boy, looking at some of these matches going into the bash at the beach pay-per-view. Oof. It's going to be interesting to see how they play out. Another commercial bumper promo. It's the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Not the Nacho Man. I'm not the Nacho Man. I'm the Macho Man right there, uh uh-huh. And the Outsiders will find that out at the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. Oh, my God. Two times in one episode? We're going to do this again? Our world is about to change. Enter the realm. Blood runs cold. In each of us, ferns the fury of a warrior. Glacier. Our world is about to change. Blood runs cold. Glacier, coming July 1996. So not only do we have a starting date now of July, next month, next week really is July 1st. It could be any time now that we get Glacier on our TV. But not only do we get a, a debut time frame now, but we're getting two vignettes in a single episode of Nitro. Well, Glacier's about to find out that not only is our world about to change, but so is his world. July 96, it ain't happening. Mean Gene Oakland standing in the aisle. God, this guy. I didn't realize how much he got around back then. The locker room to the ring to the aisle and back and forth and all over the place. Mean Gene Oakland in the aisle now interviewing the Carolina Panthers' Kevin Green as we see a clip of Steve McMichael turning on Green from the Great American Bash Kevin Green says that Mongo sold out to the Horsemen. Green says the Carolina Panthers are going to kick some ass as Mean Gene tries to cover it up, but he's a little too late. We're live, pal, Mean Gene. Kevin Green getting a curse word on the air here. That's a big no-no here in Turner World, especially in 1996. Green then promoting a eight-man tag team match of sorts. He says after football season's over, he's going to team up with the Macho Man Randy Savage and, and two other wrestlers to take on all four members of the Horsemen. That would have been interesting had it happened. And then back to the ring, it is the macho man Randy Savage with Kevin Green in his corner taking on VK Wall Street. And the wild man Randy Savage attacks VK to get the match going. Interestingly enough, on commentary, they continue to sell the wrestlers from around the world wanting a piece of the Outsiders. They claim that Antonio Inoki from Japan and even the Belfast bruiser Fit Finley from Ireland want back into WCW in order to get their hands on these Outsiders. Everybody's upset at Hall and Nash for some reason. Action in the ring, though, sees Wall Street out to the floor early on, shoving Kevin Green on the outside. This upsets Green, who jumps up on the apron, distracting the referee, allowing Wall Street to toss the Macho Man over the top rope and out to the floor and then into the guardrail. Action goes on, it's back and forth in the ring with Boltman giving a suplex. Wall Street goes to the top rope and comes down, though, into the foot of the Macho Man. It's comeback time for Randy Savage, who goes up for his big flying elbow but Wall Street wisely rolls out of the ring and onto the floor. VK, though, backs up into Kevin Green. Wall Street takes a big swing at Kevin, but gets sent into the steel post. Green then rolling Wall Street back inside the ring, where it's time for the flying elbow, as the Macho Man picks up the win four minutes and 35 seconds. After the match, the Macho Man Kevin Green celebrates the win, and we all know the Macho Man is the man, but this crowd, they still chant, We want flair. And another commercial bumper promo, it's Sting and Lex Luger talking their upcoming triangle match. It is next. It's time for the main event of WCW Monday Nitro, Tag Team Champions Sting and Lex Luger taking on the former champions, Harlem Heat, and I guess another pair of former champions as well, in the Steiner Brothers. And unfortunately, this is not ECW elimination style rules, but rather WWE shit rules, where anyone can be pinned and the title changes hands, meaning the champs don't even have to be beat. In my opinion, just a cheap way to get out of shit. And what do we see during the entrances here? Is that Booker T on a cell phone? Is he talking to Sister Sherry again? What's that about, guys? But the match gets ready to go. Is Harlem Heat go after Scott's bad back early on? Continuity from last week. Remember, Harlem Heat injured the back and ribs of Scott Steiner. Then the Giant pummels on him for nearly 10 minutes in last week's main event of Nitro. So we get a little continuity here. Is Heat go after the back of Scott Steiner early on? But it doesn't last, though. Scott Steiner with a double underhook powerbomb on Booker T just launches him into the air with the double underhook powerbomb, but Lex Luger in to stop the count. Next in is the pair of Stevie Ray and Rick Steiner. Rick Steiner just German suplexes Stevie Ray for another near fall. And now it's Sting's turn to shine. Sting tagging in with Booker T. Booker misses a scissor kick, landing crotch first over the top rope. Sting then slams Booker in the corner, looking to go up to the middle rope for a pump splash, the old Vader bomb, if you will. But he comes down to the knees of Booker T and Harlem Heat take over control as we head into a commercial break. Back from break, Harlem Heat still all over the stinger. Stevie Ray with a power slam on Sting for a two count as the We Want Flare chance. Yes, guys, they continue even during the main event of Nitro here. And it's at this point I note that Lex Luger has yet to tag into the match. We've seen all five other guys compete thus far in this matchup. We went through a commercial break and Luger, he's still fresh on the apron. Booker T nails a scissor kick on the stinger, but Rick Steiner in to break up the pin. A tag out to Stevie Ray, and it sees Ray and Sting crack heads and down go both men with the stinger falling into the crotch, of poor Stevie Ray. Ray makes his way over to tag in brother Booker T, but Booker goes up top and misses a high flying splash down onto the mat, and it allows Sting time to crawl over and make the tag to partner. Lex Luger the total package in for the first time in the matchup. Lex! taking out his aggression on both members of harlem heat loaded floor arm. boom nails stevie ray sends him through the ropes out of the ring and then the big power slam on booker t but what is that in the crowd the crowd's standing up there's something going on that's scott hall and kevin nash coming down the steps through the crowd and straight over the guardrail with baseball bats in hand nash begins pounding the bat onto the steel steps Catching the attention of the Steiners, Sting, and and eventually Lex Luger, Luger begins to pick Booker T up for the torture rack, but he sees what's going on and immediately drops Booker T as Luger, Sting, and the Steiners confront Hall and Nash on the outside. Baseball bats in hand. Out of nowhere, like a dozen Charlotte police officers hit the ring during the match. During the match, guys, the bell has not sounded. And with all four babyfaces distracted, Booker T from behind with a schoolboy on Lex Luger. Stevie Ray reaches in for an assistance, holding Lex Luger down as the referee makes the one, the two, and the three. Yes, unbelievable. Even with 12 police officers standing in the middle of the ring and Hall and Nash on the outside with baseball bats, the referee manages to count a three count here. Booker T steals the win. Harlem Heat are the new WCW tag team champions. They sneak away with the belts. While nobody's paying attention, they roll out of the ring, actually holding the belts in the air like none of this is even going on. Match went about 11 and a half minutes. And really, truly, as far as a wrestling match goes, again, another nothing match here. Very little substance out of uh, Harlem Heat getting a little heat on Sting, which most of that through a commercial break. So Harlem Heat are the new tag team champions. And even though Luger did the job, took the pin here, he's right back up looking at Holland Nash. It's like the tag team titles are an afterthought here to everyone but the Harlem Heat. I wrote, how did this match continue? We had 12 cops in the ring with their hands on their guns. And we'll get to that in a minute. And then I really wasn't a fan of Harlem Heat just absolutely no-selling Hall and Nash at ringside. Booker literally rolls out of the ring right by them, holding the WCW tag team title in the air. No-selling the fact that Hall and Nash were about three feet away with baseball bats. Now remember, the first story we're telling here is that WCW, everyone in WCW is united against these outsiders. The second story we're telling is the Outsiders are against everybody in WCW. And I'm not even questioning Booker T being the heel here, trying to get the wins, getting those belts back. That's fine. But no selling it after the match. Just kind of walking past Hall and Nash, celebrating their title win. I don't know if you chalked it up to, I don't want to say greenness, but they still were pretty young in their career. But honestly, just the entire finish came off a little wonky to me. But the big story here is that Hall and Nash have invaded. They're back this week. We didn't see them last week, but they're back this week and they're making a statement threatening with baseball bats at ringside. Nobody attempting to arrest them. But what we do have is nearly a dozen cops standing in the ring with their hands on their guns. Literally, guys, the cameraman zooms in to the police officers with their hands on their guns, getting ready to draw their guns. I wrote, holy shit. You want to talk about reality for the Times. I didn't even remember this. The cops getting ready to draw their guns on Holland Nash so a really cool segment here, in some ways and in some ways I have to dissect it. You know, it's hindsight being twenty twenty. I'm looking back, you know, more than twenty five years ago at this now, so I can kind of point out some of the flaws. Now we can do the tunnel vision gimmick, and I can just pretend everything was just as awesome as it was as it was happening back in 1996, or we can kind of pinpoint these little things that, eh, maybe they could have done this a little differently. We could have tweaked that here or there. Like I said, it's hindsight being twenty twenty, but this just felt kind of jumbled up. I love the Hall and Nash thing coming to ringside, but. At no point should the match have even continued once the officers in the ring, their hands were on their guns. Every other wrestler in the match was in the ring as his pinfall was taking place. Booker T and Stevie Ray win the belts. They leave walking past Hall and Nash holding the belts up as if none of this is even going on. Lex Luger pops back up from doing the job, losing the belts, and it's Lex Luger. So he kind of cares about being a champion and he kind of no sells it too. He's right back to worrying about Hall and Nash. And at no point, there are no security, there are no cops even trying to tackle or escort Hall and Nash out of the building. Nobody's trying to arrest these two. They're allowing them to stand ringside during a wrestling match with baseball bats in hand, weapons in hand. And then I can look at it from the other end. Here's Hall and Nash on the outside with baseball bats up against 12 police officers holding guns in their hands, getting ready to draw guns on them. And Hall and Nash, they don't even sell it. They're the cool guys, remember? They're not even going to sell the fact that that there's a dozen cops in the ring getting ready to draw guns on them, they kind of just laugh it off and continue their and Nash-type characters here. Now, you don't even notice that stuff back in 96, or at least I didn't. I was having too much fun enjoying the angle. But as I go back and look at this, why aren't the cops trying to arrest these guys? Why are these guys laughing at cops holding guns? Like I said, there's little things that could be done differently, but at the end of the day, what a wild bunch of shit this was. Really cool angle going on here. Hall and Nash invade WCW yet again. They sneak in through the crowd. Somehow they snuck weapons in through the crowd. And Sting and Luger and the Steiners daring them to get in the ring. It never happens here, but just a crazy sight in general. Complete chaos as we get closer to the bash at the beach. WCW doing a pretty damn good job in their outsider storyline anyway. And before we close out Nitro, we see Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan up at the announce desk. Tony says that WCW isn't taking this lightly. There will be no hostile takeover. Bobby Heenan is visibly scared out of his mind, and that concludes another edition of WCW Monday Nitro, the Outsiders once again making their presence felt. Whew, so another episode done here, with WCW Nitro heading into the bash at the beach. Hall and Nash have all the momentum in the world, but who will be that third man? We'll just have to wait and see. Segment of the night here for Nitro. Was it the triangle match main event? Was it the Horseman versus the Rock and Rolls? Maybe Guerrero versus Barb? Or even Malenko versus Bobby Walker? Wow, as I I look back at this card, we're really light here this week on good action on Nitro. Two hours and just a whole bunch of nothing matches. Not, Not a whole lot. Nobody was really given time this week in the ring to put anything decent together. I think the Horseman versus the Rock and Rolls, had they had an extended match, had Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson been here a little longer, gotten a little more over again, That could have been something decent here on this show, but like I said, about six minutes of action there, and it was really nothing. It was like formulaic, but you got none of the good stuff in between. Then again, the triangle match, not very good either. Not a whole lot to that. Everybody got a move or two in, and then Harlem Heat taking over, getting some heat on Sting. Again, like I said before, most of which during a commercial break, back from break, Luger gets that big hot tag. He doesn't have to do a whole hell of a lot, a couple moves himself. And then it's time for Hall and Nash to make their way down, which has got to be my segment of the night. If you want to lump the triangle match into the Hall and Nash appearance, then yeah, that would be my segment of the night. However, I say skip the majority of the match and just watch the segment with uh, Luger getting the hot tag, Hall and Nash coming down and just causing chaos. Those dozen officers, roughly a dozen officers, running into the ring, forming a line in front of Hall and Nash on the outside, beating their bats against the steel steps. And then the cops putting their hands on their weapons, putting their hands on the guns and the cameras zooming in on said cop's hands on guns. Unbelievable. I absolutely did not remember that. It kind of caught me off guard even here in 2022. I was like, holy shit. So pretty cool little deal there. Like I said, you can find flaws in the story. You can put some holes in it. But at the end of the day, very cool stuff for the time. Hall and Nash get back on WCW TV. So I'm sure 1996 me was excited. Maybe not so much for the Harlem Heat title win, knowing me, probably rooting for the Steiners there. But yeah, that would have to be my segment of the night. I think Raw even had Nitro beat on wrestling action, maybe, and and Raw was not good at all either. So neither show put on one great quality wrestling match. I'll say that much this week. In fact, I dare say the best match on Nitro we never even got to see. It was likely that dark match between Ric Flair and the Macho Man. Flair getting that big win there in Charlotte to send the fans home happy. But yeah, you have to look at that. How is Raw doing compared to Nitro? Segment of the night on Raw, Ahmed Johnson and Triple H, maybe? And over on Nitro, Hall and Nash coming down and having a standoff with the Charlotte Police Department. Two different worlds right now are the WWF and WCW. And the ratings are in. And even though Monday Nitro really dragged to the point the increase from hour to hour was the weakest to date. It still handily defeated the WWF's Raw in the ratings, which is a big deal since Raw was coming off a major WWF pay per view event like King of the Ring the night before. So, a very huge deal there as Nitro does a 3.2 in the first hour and a 3.3 in the second hour for a combined rating of a 3.2 with a 5.7 share to Monday Night Raw's 2.7 rating and a 4.5 share. So Nitro does a 3.2, Raw does a 2.7, Raw coming off a pay-per-view of all things. You want to talk about trouble, they may be in it. should also note this week of June 24th that the Nitro replay also set an all-time record, doing a 1.6 rating and nearly a 4.0 share. So with Hall and Nash now invading almost on a weekly basis, Nitro, even the replay of Nitro doing some record ratings. Now, now because the action in the ring on Nitro kind of dragged, it wasn't so hot. We don't really see an increase like we normally do in the second hour of Nitro. It kind of stays the same. Goes from a 3.2 to a 3.3. Barely increases. That's okay. They stayed steady in the ratings anyway. And I think at this point, WCW is starting to train the fans to believe that the Hall and Nash segment is coming at the end of every week's show they're going to have to change that up and they will change that up very soon here and though we haven't seen Hall nor Nash get physical with anyone outside of Eric Bischoff they've now made their impact in a wrestling match by allowing the Harlem Heat to steal the tag team titles from Sting and Lex Luger so nitro beats raw in the ratings yet again and that would make this the second consecutive week that nitro's beaten raw in a what you guessed it It's the beginning of the 83-week reign of WCW Monday Nitro on top of WWF's Monday Night Raw. This is only week two. We've got 81 more weeks of goodness to go here. WCW dominating the ratings, and it's just getting started with this Hall and Nash invasion. Wait until the NWO are in full effect here in just a few weeks. And all right, Nitro crushes Raw in the ratings yet again. But the real winner here, we all know sometimes, The ratings winner is not necessarily what we would call the real winner. The real winner usually being the program with the best wrestling or the best storylines. Here this week, though, I think the viewers at home had it right. I do think Monday Nitro had Raw beat out. Again, the matches themselves, it could go either way. And honestly, you might even want to lean towards the WWF if you like that style of wrestling. WCW really didn't offer a whole lot of anything other than a bunch of glorified squashes and then that main event, which was what it was up until the big payoff at the end. And that's really what does it here for me. It's just the big storyline at the end between the WCW and the Outsiders that gives them the nod. Otherwise, this could be a toss up really, guys, because neither show really producing a whole lot of great wrestling right now. The WWF's matches were far more competitive. Austin and the Undertaker, Triple H and Ahmed Johnson, things of that nature They were given the time in the ring. So the matches on Raw were going something like 12 minutes, 15, 16 minutes, things like that. In a one-hour program over here on Nitro, we got a two-hour program, and most of these matches were less than five minutes long. You almost feel like Raw and Nitro need to flip-flop their formats when it comes to in-ring action. Raw, quicker, faster-paced action. WCW Nitro, they have the younger, fresher stars. Give them more time to shine out there in the ring. Nevertheless, this week, Raw maybe the slight advantage on the wrestling because the matches were actually given time to develop, but easily Nitro hands down gets the win here. Love the fast-paced booking of the shows, but most of all, great segment to close the show. The Outsiders, once again, scaring the bejesus out of Bobby Heenan, and, and the fans want to know what the hell's going on, too. They got Charlotte Police out there. So at the end of the day, good job here. Well done job by WCW as they continue the story into the Bash the Beach. Of course, as we all know by now, things will erupt there in Daytona. But before we get there, we got another week of TV coming up. It's July 1st, 1996. We're going to talk again Monday Night Raw and WCW Monday Nitro. It's the go-home Nitro to the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. Lots of things going to happen there, no doubt, leading into the big pay-per-view. And then over on Raw, we know Shawn Michaels getting ready to take on Marty Jannetty. Former rockers explode on Monday Night Raw here in 1996. Also, Mankind in Action and Goldust taking on the wild man Mark Marrow as well. Goldust now without the Intercontinental title in hand. And just to give you a taste of what to expect next week on Monday, Nitro, the Steiner brothers will get their tag team title shot against Harlem Heat. Also, a really fun bout between Disco Inferno and Kurosawa. When we get there, you'll see what I'm talking about. Hey, Greg the Hammer Valentine's going to be here next week on Nitro, taking on the Macho Man. WCW champion, the Giant, slated to defend against John Tenta. And we're going to see all four members of the Horsemen in eight man tag team action. So, all of that and a bunch more, a lot going on in the Go Home show to the Bash at the Beach pay per view. And, of course, over on Raw, we're going to be building up to the International Incident in Your House pay per view upcoming in the month of July as well. Things just keep moving, guys, and there's no time to slow down. So, check back soon for another edition of the program as we talk Raw versus Nitro, the WWF versus WCW. This has been Ray Russell with Monday Warfare, the Battles Within. Our world is about to change. Enter the realm. Blood runs cold. In each of us burns the fury of a warrior. Glacier.